Well, we did church history and Christian biography for a long time. It occurred to me with the start of the church year, the new year, uh, the school year, uh, a time to do something new. And what I want to do is work through the Westminster Standards. Uh, Our youth in the senior high does this. And there's no reason why you should be less theologically educated than your teenagers. And uh, it's dangerous for them to have information you don't have. Uh, But it's also very edifying. Now, I did a lesson... I think it was my last history lesson was on or or Christian. I did the Westminster Divines, and I've talked about the assembly. If you want that information, it's right there on YouTube or on our website, I'm sure. But let me say that the what the the goal of the Westminster Standards of the Westminster Confession is to summarize in categories the teaching of the Scriptures. It's not a replacement for the Scriptures. It's not trying to dictate to the Scriptures. We'll talk about that. But it's a summary. And it's, it's particularly noteworthy that when they wrote the Westminster Standard, which, of course, is a doctrinal confessional standard for our church, all of our officers subscribe to it, um, they very deliberately made the first chapter of Holy Scripture. That's actually a little unusual among the Reformed Confessions. Uh, the first and second Helvetic confessions, it's also true of them. But most of the, the Heidelberg Catechism or the Belgian Confession, the Three Forms of Unity, the Augsburg Confession, all those great Reformation confessions usually start with a statement of the being of God or of the gospel. You think of the Heidelberg Catechism, what is my only hope in life and death? It starts with a statement of the gospel, very powerful. But the Westminster Confession deliberately starts with of the Holy Scriptures because this is the issue that has to be straight before we get to anything else. And so this is the epistemological issue. How do we know when we're going to be talking about things? How do we know them? We need to know why and what we believe about the Holy Scriptures. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to work through the paragraphs and, uh, and make some comments on them as we go through it. There's a number of arguments in here. There's the necessity of Scripture. How do we define Scripture? What's the authority of Scripture? Why is it persuasive? How do we interpret it? How is it clear? And the supreme rule of Scripture. That's what we're going to tonight. Okay, first, the first statement, and this is a great statement. Although the light of nature and the works of creation, this is how the confession begins, and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable, yet are they not sufficient, creation and providence, to give that knowledge of God and of his will, which is necessary unto salvation. Therefore, it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diverse manners to reveal himself and to declare that his, his will unto his church and afterwards for the better preserving and propagating of the truth and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and of the world, to commit the same holy unto writing, which maketh the Holy Scripture to be most necessary. That's the famous statement. The Holy Scriptures are most necessary, those former ways of God revealing his will unto his people now being ceased. Now, what are some of the issues there? Well, first, it affirms that the general revelation, that's creation and, and providence, you look at like Psalm 19 or Psalm 8, the heavens declare the glory of God. So I look at the stars, I hear the babies cry. Also history, I see how things go in history, providence. And it tells me so much about God that as to make my unbelief inexcusable. 
Someone says, well, you know, if I can find a person in some tribe, in some dark corner of the world, and they've never heard the Bible, they've never heard about Jesus, how can they be condemned by God? Because they are without excuse. This is Romans 1. Because God has revealed himself sufficiently. But the problem is our sinful nature. The problem with general revelation is not general revelation. The problem is the total depravity of the will of fallen man. Uh, and so general, and, and, and by design, general revelation does not give that knowledge of God and his will necessary to salvation. Looking at the sunset, you can see the power and the beauty and the creative genius of God and the goodness of God, many of his attributes, but you will not discover how your sins are going to be forgiven by looking at a, at a sunset. Therefore, the Holy Scripture is most necessary to salvation. It is the, it is, the thing needed is that God would reveal to us a saving knowledge of himself and of his way of salvation. And he has committed that to us by his word. Theologians call it special revelation. The word of the prophets and the apostles the Old and New Testament are where these things are written. And the confession had some lines about the benefits of the church, that the Lord had it written down. That, that's true. Imagine if we didn't have a written Bible. There'd be, no, there'd be no sure light. There'd be no way to defend the truth. Uh, and so God has committed his word to us in writing. If you ever find yourself being discontented towards God, remember that he's given you his word, the knowledge of himself that will give you eternal life. He's committed to us in writing. Now, maybe the most controversial line is that those former ways have now ceased. Now, the context of the Westminster Confession really has two types of theological concerns. One of them is, of course, the Roman Catholic Church. Coming out of the Protestant Reformation and, of course, the English Civil War going on was about Calvinism versus Catholicism. So there's no doubt the divines are going to say things that are pointedly opposed to Catholicism. But the other issue was called the inner life movement. as a basically a proto-charismatic movement which believed in extra-biblical revelation and claimed to be giving prophecies. There was actually a, quite a bit of that going on, and they were equally concerned about the inner life movement. Uh, of course, the Quakers are going to be an expression of that, right? Uh, I don't know what the Quakers do now. They probably do, but in their heyday, you went to the Quaker meeting house, and you looked at each other, and you waited for someone's inner voice to speak. And, well, that would be trouble if it was me. The uh, Particularly during football season, I admit. The... Uh, uh, and, and so they, they have that in their mind as well. Now, it is the argument of our confession and of the Reformation as a whole that there is no longer extant in the church the kind of prophecy that you had prior to the writing of the New Testament. And the main biblical argument, so if someone says, I have a prophecy from God. Uh, now, usually when someone says they have a prophecy from God, there are churches sincerely, where they'll set a microphone up and they'll say, who's got a word from God? And someone will come up, and I don't say this to mock them at all, and come, I have a word from the Lord, love one another. And I want to go, that's not prophecy, that's exhortation. And a lot of what goes on in today's circles of it's prophecy is, in fact, exhortation. Uh, uh, but the, the, the disclosing of new information by prophets and apostles 
It is our contention that this is no longer extant in the church. We know there are those who disagree with us. Now, the main biblical basis for this is found in the book of Hebrews. The opening verse in verses 1 and 2 of Hebrews 1, and this is going to be the proof text if you have the confession. They were asked to put proof text. This is one of them. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophet, but by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son or in his son would be a more uh, literal translation. Now, the argument is made, I think, very persuasively that the, what that is saying is that the time of diverse and sundry revelation, you got Amos on the one hand, and then you've got Isaiah on the other, and you've got Job, and all the, you got the diversity of the apostles and their experience, the different kinds of genres. That that is a manner of revelation that the Lord has concluded he has now revealed himself in the person and work of his son. Also, Hebrews 2, verses 3, makes the claim that when the gospel was first preached, the apostolic era, the first breaking forth of the gospel, that God at that time, and we see it in the book of Acts, that God accompanied that witness of the apostles with supernatural signs and wonders. There were, there were attestations, uh, the way, the technical way we say it is there was a rubric of apostolic gifting that included prophecy, healing, uh, casting out demons, these sorts of things. Um, but the book of Hebrews, by the way, the second century century church will agree with this, says that this was something assigned to that first generation. It was declared at first by the Lord and was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Now, it's our understanding that one of the implications of that statement is that, that, was, that those things, among them would be prophecy, speaking in tongues is another, that those things were assigned by God's will to that original attestate the original witness of the gospel. Uh, I, I often like to argue as well, Ephesians 2.18, where Paul says, or is it Ephesians 2.20, where Paul says uh, that we build the church on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. Uh, anybody's a builder here? Anybody who's a builder, how many times do you lay a foundation for a house? Once. That was the work of the apostles and the prophets. And they laid the foundation. It was laid when their, when their message was, was written, when it was inscripturated. Our job is not to do that again. It's now build on the foundation that they laid. And so we hold that prophecy has now ceased. The scripture is most necessary. Well, what do you mean by the terms Holy Scripture? Well, paragraphs 2 and 3 say, Under the name of the Holy Scripture, or the Word of God written, are now contained all the books of the Old and New Testament, and then it names them all. It's the books in your Old and New Testament. So I didn't want to you know, list them all up there. All which are given by the inspiration of God to be the rule of faith and life. Now, paragraph 3 is going to deal with the Apocrypha. Now, apocrypha means things that are hidden. It's used in a general sense. Sometimes it's used of extra-biblical New Testament writings. But in this sense, it's talking about, what, if it's not the right way to say it, but it's called the Old Testament apocrypha. Books that are not in the Bible, but are, but are often uh, treated as if they are. Uh, the books commonly called apocrypha 
not being of divine inspiration, are no part of the canon of the Scripture, therefore are of no authority in the church of God, nor to be any otherwise approved or made use of than other human writings. Now, what are we talking about is the Old Testament Apocrypha. Tobit, Judith, Bell and the Dragon, the long version of Esther, the wisdom of Solomon, Ecclesiasticus, First and Second Maccabees, the prayer of Manasseh. There's a, there's a, there's, and what happened was this. About 250 BC, the mid third century BC, in Alexandria, there was the, the Septuagint was put together. It was the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And it is a matter of fact that the Septuagint included after the Old Testament these books. I didn't list them all. There's a few others. Uh, as uh, In addition to the Old Testament. Now, it is not, I believe, that they were saying this is the Old Testament, but the Septuagint was a translation project. And they translated the Old Testament, and they kept translating things. And so what you have is, at the end of, after Malachi, when there is a uh, the silent, the 400 years of silence, well, people try to fill the silence. There were books written. And various, it, it, today it'd be like, you know, I think a good example would be like C.S. Lewis's Narnia. You know, uh, Bell and the Dragon might be like that. Uh, literary devices, or uh, some of them like are, are, are meant to be wisdom literature, the wisdom of Solomon, Ecclesiasticus. Uh, some of these are historical records. First and second Maccabees are the record of the second century uh, uh, uh Hasmonean era, I hope you know from, you may not know, around 150 BC, the Jewish people under uh, Judas Maccabeus revolted against their Seleucid masters. And that's where you have the whole Hanukkah thing. That's where the, the abomination that causes desolation took place with the great persecution of Antiochus Epiphanes IV. And you go, I don't know anything about that. Well, there's great stuff and a very good historical source for that. In fact, the main historical source is 1st Maccabees. We would go, 1st Maccabees, a really good book. 2nd Maccabees is pretty good too. Pretty historically accurate. Uh, very, uh, very edifying. Boy, what faith the Maccabees showed. It's just not scripture. You can write an edifying thing, it's not scripture. And so because the Septuagint writers put these apocryphal books at the end of the Septuagint, that led to what became a problem. Again, I I want to at least reserve judgment about what their intention was. It's not at all clear to me that they were saying this is the Bible. These were sacred Jewish writings, and they were translating them into Greek. Now, why don't we receive them in the Bible? By the way, if you ask the Roman Catholics, when did the Roman, because here's the issue, Rome has them in their Bibles. They call them the deuto-canonical, the secondary canon, although they have since then given equal canonical status to the prayer of Manasseh and the, the book of Baruch and the letter of Jeremiah. These are some of the other ones I didn't. Bell and the dragon. Um, they will say well, they've always been in our Bible. Well, here's the problem. That uh, in the time of Christ and the apostles, there were Hebrew Bibles. You know, and what, I have to say one thing you have to say for the Jewish people. We, we're going to be talking a lot about the Babylonian exile, which is very useful for you to know about in the book of Jeremiah. And uh, God's going to send, he's going to destroy Jerusalem. He's going to send them into exile. Actually, the Babylonian exile worked because the, the exile community in Babylon never worshipped idols, worshiped idols again. 
I mean, you talk about nipping a major sin issue in the bud. The Babylonian exile is the great example. They never worship idols afterwards. And living in Babylon really cured them of that. And they be, it, there's, it's true, I think, that the Jewish people became a people of the book in Babylon. In fact, the great, the, 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 the great scriptorums and no doubt the final compilation of some of these collected books like Second Chronicles, which we know is concluded in the exile, all of this takes place in Babylon. And so, and this is a great virtue. The Jewish community in Babylon is fervently biblical. They become a people of the word of God. And, and through that tradition, the Hebrew Bible that is received by in the era of Christ, Christ and the apostles, the canon that we have is the very canon that the list of books that was in the Hebrew Bible at the time of Christ is the version that we have. To me, that's a very powerful argument. Uh, you will not find Jesus quoting a single time from any of the apocryphal books. There are only fleeting references in, in kind of obscure places, really, uh, that, that might have some reference to uh, for Ezra or something like that. But uh, it's very clear that in the time of Christ and the apostles, the Old Testament of the people of God is the Old Testament that we have today. Uh, so we receive the Old Testament canon used by, in the time of Christ, the Hebrew Bible of that time. We receive the New Testament books that were received and acknowledged by the early church. Now, I told you when I was doing church history that I was going to do a couple of lectures on the, on the textual background for the Bible and on the issue of canonization. I forgot to do it, so my next two lessons after this, I'm going to give those. So I'm going to do of the Holy Scriptures tonight. Then I'm going to do those two lectures I forgot to do. You go, what, well, what's the whole story about canonization? I'm going to give you a whole lecture on it, okay? Or not, not a long lecture, but. Um, uh, it's a, why then does the Roman Catholic Church have all these extra books in it? It was actually the Council of Trent in 1546 in response to the Protestant Reformation. It's because there are references they find convenient to uphold their anti-biblical doctrines. That's just the truth. Uh, so we do not accept the apocryphal books. It was not accepted by the Jews as scripture. It is written in Greek, not Hebrew. It was written after Malachi, they are, which means in the time of prophetic silence. And they contain many things erroneous, superstitious, and immoral, says Shaw. That's a little more negative than he should be. Uh, it's true that if you read Judith and Tobit and Bell and the Dragon, you're going to go, that was actually kind of goofy. It is kind of goofy. Uh, and there are some parts that are clearly wrong. In fact, it's interesting... One thing I might add is that the, the apocryphal writers do not claim to be writing Scripture. You know, an Old Testament prophet, what does he say? Thus says the Lord. The word of the Lord came to me. They don't say that. In fact, in many places they go, you know, I could be totally wrong about this. Uh, well, fine. It's an interesting. Thank you for writing Ecclesiasticus, whoever wrote it. They try to say poor Ezra gets blamed for half these books. Uh, uh, but it's not scripture. And but I will say, if you ever find yourself reading, you may come away from this going, I'm going to read, they, they call them the lost books of the Bible. I'm going to be enlightened. You'll get about halfway through one of the books and go, yeah, it's, this ain't scripture. <laughs> it's just not. And uh, anyway, you'd have to have kind of a specialized interest. So the, when we say scripture, we mean the books of the Old and New Testament that 
were the canon, the, the, the received Jewish Bible, Hebrew Bible of the time of Christ. And that canon that was recognized, not established, not created, but recognized by the early church. Okay. Well, why is the Bible authoritative? What a hugely important issue this is. Because the issue, and this is one of the big issues in the Protestant Reformation, where, what's the ultimate authority? What's the final rule of faith and practice? Well, paragraph four says, the authority of the Holy Scripture for which it ought to be believed and obeyed dependeth not upon the testimony of any man, that's against the higher life movement, with their prophetic charismatic leaders, or church, that's Rome, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof. And this, and this, is such a, this is one of those many statements you're going to go, ah, and they nailed it. And therefore, it is to be received because it is the word of God. Amen. The reason the, the Bible speaks with ultimate authority is because it is God's word, because of the authority of the one who speaks in it. You know, today we'll be criticized. It used to be that the liberals are called us this. Now it's the progressive evangelicals. And they'll say, you're Bible auditors. You worship the Bible. And I go, you know, that, that's not criticism that stings, to be honest with you. Uh, and I go, let's say that there's someone who we love, and that person uh, writes a letter to us. And if we treasure and read carefully and believe that letter, who are we worshiping? Not the letter, but the person who wrote it. That's what we're doing. And we worship God by referencing his word. The Bible, you know, it is our conviction. It's our confessional conviction. It's my personal conviction. It's our church's conviction. That the, the Bible says it, that settles it. The Bible speaks and it is it bears final authority. We rest upon the word of God. We believe, I'm, I'm sure you've had this, I've had this experience many times where I've realized I think the Bible's wrong. And fortunately, I have the understanding to go, well, St. Augustine, St. Augustine talks about this. He goes, I often have the experience of believing the Bible's wrong, but then I remember that I'm the one who's wrong. <laughs> and I need, the Bible's right, I need to change my opinion. I, I, I'm sure you have changed your view on important things. I certainly have. Because the Bible says, and that ought to be normal. I will say, uh, as an example, um, at the time I went to my wonderful seminary, they were not that strong on the issue of creation. And I kind of bought into, if it wasn't that important to me, but uh, I kind of bought into, not, a, not evolution, but a kind of a sophisticated, you know, who knows view of it. And I actually was, was explaining the view that I'd been taught to one of my assistant ministers in Florida when I said during my explanation, you know what, I need to repent of everything I just said. Because the testimony of Scripture is against everything I've said, and I changed my view because of the compelling authority of the Word of God. And there's so many issues today. When I was first converted, my mother, my dear mother, before her deathbed conversion, she was in a PCUSA church, and if, I, don't, I don't know if it's still true, but it used to be true that the PCUSA believes that the only thing we ever talk about is male-only leadership in the church and home. And so it's the thing we're defined by. We don't believe in anything else. We never talk about anything else but uh, male rule in the church and in the home. And so my dear mother said to me, when she learned I joined a PCA church, she said to me, I just don't know why you think women are so inferior to men. I said, well, mother, we don't believe that at all. 
well, you say that women cannot be ordained ministers. I said, that's true. But see, the reason is because it is clearly taught in the Holy Scriptures. And so I remember saying to her, Mother, the issue is not these peripheral issues. The issue we're debating on is the Scriptures, the Word of God. And the reason that we believe and teach and practice it is because we are persuaded that this book bears the authority of God. And this is why this is chapter 1 of the Confession. Until you get that settled, there's no way to go forward. It, It is to be received because it is the Word of God. So I would encourage you that when you find the Bible saying uncomfortable things to you, And as your preacher, I know that that does because I am often the mouth that delivers uncomfortable things to you. It is God who is speaking through his word, and we need to change our view. And people go, I don't like to do that. Well, you are not God. And he is. Okay. That's a hugely important. Let's talk about the persuasiveness of Scripture. This is another classic and famous paragraph. Why should Scripture be believed? This is going to be very helpful evangelistically, I think. And here's here's paragraph 5. We may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church. The church teaches that the Bible is the Word of God. Well, that's a good reason. To a high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scriptures and the heavenliness of the matter and the efficacy of the doctrine and the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, the many other incomparable excellencies and the entire perfection thereof are arguments whereby it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. Yet, notwithstanding, our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. That was was excellent. Let's work through this. There's a lot of good reasons why we should believe the Bible. And yeah, the testimony of the church is very good. The, The heavenliness of the matter means that you can't, and you, particularly if you're an adult convert like me, you just never read anything like, about, like the Bible until you've read the Bible with, with your eyes opened. And the way it, it, it really discloses to you God. Um, the efficacy of the doctrine. The Bible works. You know, I, I preached a wedding this weekend, and I do three things in a wedding homily. Every time I proclaim the gospel, I give marital counseling to all the married people who are there, and I give a good word out of our counseling to the couple who's getting married. And hopefully people come away and go, yeah, we ought to try that Bible way. Because it works, it, the doctrine's efficacy. Now, when they say the majesty of the style, I, I think it's true that there was the view that the literary style of the Scripture was an exalted literary style, maybe even somewhat supernaturally so, that meant you ought to believe the Bible. And that's, if that's what they meant, it's really not true. Uh, the Gospel of Mark, for instance, is not written in good literary style. Uh, even in English, you're like, that's like, and then this, and then this, and that, because it's a Jewish guy writing in Greek. He thinks it's Hebrew, and it's got a Hebrew grammatical construction, and it's the Greek language, and a, a literary stylist would go, I mean, Mark is getting an F on his paper for literary style. Okay, you can't mix metaphors unless you're the Apostle Paul, who's Mr. Mixed Metaphor. 
F to Paul. I mean, Paul gets an F for that. Yeah, Paul doesn't get an F. So we're going we're gonna to set that argument aside. The consent of the parts is the unity of the Scriptures. Now, that's a big issue. That's a big argument. Yeah, the Old, the whole, the old Testament starts, let's say, 1350 with Moses in the Exodus, maybe 1550, whatever. And it concludes AD 95. And the unity of Scripture is unbelievable. The doctrinal unity, the description of God on the way of salvation. Uh, the full discovery it makes of the only way to salvation. The, this book will show you how to be saved. These are, there are so many reasons why we should believe the Bible. But here's the question. Why do we believe the Bible? And this is, this is so important to the, the understanding. It's coming out of Calvin and coming out of Augustine. It's coming out of Paul and Isaiah. No, the reason we believe the Bible is because of the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in the effectual calling by means of the Word of God. The Spirit bears testimony with your spirit that it is the Word of God. Now, this is frustrating to our debating partners. So our debating partners are going to say, well, that's a closed loop. That's a closed argument. You say the reason you believe and I don't believe is that the Holy Spirit has helped you to believe. We're like, that's we're sticking to it. That's our argument. Because it's not a debate. It's true. And I love the line here. The Spirit bears testimony by the Scripture and with the Scripture or to the Scripture. And so what you experience in reading the Bible, it's through. It's not apart from the Bible. It's as we're ministering the Word of God that we come to the convictions about the Word of God because the Spirit is is communicating to our spirits in a supernatural way that, the, that God is speaking to us by his word through the Holy Spirit. And so we, be, we do believe, oh, we should believe for all kinds of reasons. We do believe because of the subjective and powerful work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Uh, the interpretation of Scripture. I'm going to end in 10 minutes, so uh, we've got kids coming back. How do we rightly use the Bible? The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture. Now that means the Bible says it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. That means he sent his only begotten Son because he loved the world. That's an express statement of Scripture. Or by good and necessary consequences may be deduced from the Scripture under which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit, that's against the inner life movement, or traditions of men, that's Roman Catholicism. Now, that's it, but he's what they're saying there. The Bible teaches truth two primary ways, and equally authoritative. One way is by saying it straight up. Repent and believe the gospel and you will be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. What does that mean? It means believe in the Lord Jesus Christ you'll be saved. But there's also good and necessary consequences. For instance, there is no verse in the Bible that teaches the Trinity. There's no verse that says there is one God in three persons of equal power, glory, and authority. Uh, that statement is not it's in the confession. It's not in the Bible. Why do we believe that the Bible teaches necessarily the doctrine of the Trinity by, by, by not just good deduction, good inference, but by necessary inference? What the scripture says demands the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, there's a million places you can go to. A good example is Matthew 4, Jesus, or Matthew 3, Jesus' baptism. God the Son is, is, 
He's uh, just been baptized. He's been, he, he was recently been standing in the water while the water was poured over his head, and he's left the river to go up on the bank. That's is God the Son. God the Father is speaking out of heaven, and God the Holy Spirit is descending on him like a dove. Now that chapter does not say, by the way, there are three equal persons in the Trinity. But it mandates that view. The, the scripture creates arguments. And by the way, I would say that the main unit of biblical revelation, it varies according to genre, is the paragraph. The the Bible not only gives us words and sentences, but it gives reasons. It it tells stories, and it tells us the meaning of the stories. And and that story and the meaning of the story, whether or not, you know, the Bible never says penal substitutionary atonement. But everything the Bible says about the death of Jesus demands that we believe he died to pay the penalty of our sin as our substitute in an atoning sacrifice to God. Does that make sense? That is, by the way, that's going to be a real difference between Presbyterianism and other evangelical denominations. The ability to, to have an authoritative theology that's not from, it's not from some human author, Doctrines that are true and are authoritative from the Word of God by good and necessary consequence. A good, a good consequence is, yeah, that fits. A necessary consequence says, no, it's demanded. The doctrine of the Trinity is a good and necessary consequence. It is demanded by the Holy Scripture. I hope that's helpful. Uh, seven minutes to go. Okay. Nevertheless, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary. Absolutely. We believe, though the Bible's reasonable, it creates, it makes statements, it makes arguments, teaches doctrines, it does it in a reasonable way. Nonetheless, we need the inward dwelling of the Holy Spirit. We need to be illuminated for that. And there are, and there are times when we make judgment calls uh, based upon prudence. What time should the worship service be? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us. The Bible, you have an 8.30 service with Sunday school at 10 and an 11 o'clock service. No, we're just acting. There are things that we believe and practice out of genuine prudence with biblical uh, uh, teaching. Now, the issues are the Bible teaches by the express statements of Scripture. They are true. It also teaches by good and necessary consequences. There's a polemic there. It's not your, not your interpretation. It's not you having a word from the Lord. It's not some pope. Or, by the way, there's many kinds of popes, by the way, uh, uh, who, who, who tells us that, no, no, it's the scripture. We need illumination. We need prayer. And there are sometimes we use, uh, Christian prudence in a scriptural way. Now, one of my favorite doctrines of the Reformed faith is the perspicuity of Scripture. Somebody tell me what, somebody who's not in seminary or been to seminary, tell me what perspicuity means. Clarity. Then why don't they say clarity? So we're teaching on the clarity of Scripture, so we use a word nobody knows. I I love that, actually. I I, I love that. Um, Is the Bible accessible to regular folks? Yes. All things in Scripture are not alike, plain in themselves. Not everything's as clear as there's parts of scripture that are harder, and sometimes it's harder to you and less harder to me and another. So not everything in scripture is easy to understand. But all those things necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of scripture or another that you can know it. So yeah, there's verses of the Bible. I'm still not certain what they say. 
Uh, particularly, you know, there are passages in some Old Testament texts I preach that if I wanted to go through a 30-minute rabbit hole, I could tell you about the difficult textual translation. And I'm not exactly certain that this verse says that, but here's what we think. But I don't do that because it would make my sermons super long and super boring. Um, but, but it's not everything's easy. But everything you need to know to be saved and to lead a godly life is so clearly taught in the scripture that regular folks like you with a little study, can learn it. Now, I love how Calvin puts it. Calvin says, so that even stupid and unlettered folk. Now, he didn't say stupid in a pejorative way. He meant ordinary, but it sounds fun today. Even stupid, uh, unlettered people like you. <laughs> now, the confession's nicer. Not only the learned, but the unlearned. Now, you're fairly learned people, but you don't have to have a specialized degree. You don't have to read Greek and Hebrew to understand your Bible. By the due use of ordinary means may attain to a sufficient understanding of them. Sure, there's hard parts in Scripture. There's things we can't give a a sufficient answer for. But everything you need to know to be saved and to lead a godly Christian life is so plain that everybody who can reason and who's got a Bible and a dictionary can learn it. That's an important statement. Uh, uh, paragraph 8 is about translation. Yes. Uh, the Old Testament's written almost all of it in Hebrew, some in Aramaic. New Testament's all in Greek. Yes. It's helpful to know those things. But the Bible, that was a big issue in their time. The Bible needs to be translated. But they also said what needs to be said today, it needs to be read. Lack of not having special education, not having certifications and decrees. You may say, I'm not really smart. No, no, no. You can read your Bible. And God will speak to you. And the Holy Spirit will will convey not some special truth, the truth that's written on the page. And the infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. So what do we do? How do we decide? We We don't understand how to interpret a passage. What do we do? We look elsewhere where the Bible speaks clearly to that passage. And what the Bible says there tells us how to handle it there. That is, you say, what is the rule for the interpretation of Scripture? There it is. Scripture interprets Scripture. And it's amazing how helpful that will be. This is why you have a, a Bible probably with indexes. Maybe you have a study Bible. A lot of that study Bible is showing you what the Bible says elsewhere. That is a vitally important principle. Good and necessary consequences is important. But Scripture interprets Scripture. The, the Scripture is one, by which they means there's one author, there's a consistent message, uh, and he is speaking truth in his word of God. Sometimes it seems he's clearer in other places, the clear passage governs. Uh, and then this is my last slide. Where does the Bible stand compared to all other authorities? It is supreme. The supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined and all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men, I love it, and private spirits. Calvin includes, or the, the, the shorter catechism includes, and suggestions of Satan, let's not leave those out, are to be examined and in whose sentence we are to rest can be no other but the Holy Spirit speaking in Scripture. When you have the Bible on the one hand, no matter what other authority, whether it's science, whatever that means today, whether it's J.I. Packer, whether it's your mother, 
whether it's, you know, your college professor, whether it's the Westminster Standard, whatever it is, where the Bible speaks clearly, there God speaks. And that is the final authority. I've often said it at presbytery meetings when we're debating things. We have seen what the Scripture says. What ought to happen now is debates should close, and there should be a unanimous assent to the teaching of the Scriptures. Sadly, that often doesn't happen. But it must happen. The final authority is the Scripture. We must... By the way, you will find that in our actual debates of theology, we don't, debate, we don't tend to debate the confession that much. I think the godlier people don't. We debate the Scriptures. I find... When things are going in a bad direction, the debate becomes over what the divines meant. I, I, I care about that. And, you know, what, what, was Oliver, what did Oliver Twist write in a letter to Mrs. Twist in 1643? It's all relevant. But we don't hold any of our doctrines or practices because the confession says so. We hold every one of our doctrines and practices because the Bible says so. And we ought to discuss and teach. You have heard me give zero sermons. on. You have seen me fist pump during the confession of the faith with these lines from the... From the uh, it's so good. But we preach the word of God. We teach the word of God. We deal with problems through the word of God. The Holy Scripture speaking... Holy Spirit speaking in Scripture. Father, we thank you for this night. I pray you would bless all that I've said. Be with all these dear people and their children. In Jesus' name, amen.